Okay, according to my watch, it is 6.30. So to be respectful of your time, let's go ahead and get started. Would you all pray with me as we get started? Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this beautiful city we live in, the beautiful mountains. Thank you for the opportunity to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a family, to worship you and to hopefully learn more about your word and to help us be more better at reading scriptures and understanding the, the main points you would like us to take away from it. I do pray that your spirit would guide us in this discussion and that you would be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. <laughs> That's true. It's starting to get a little hazy again, which is unfortunate. Okay, so as you know, I like to start with words of the day. Most of these you already know, contronym, kakuithes, epicaricasi, wabbit was last time I taught, which is tired, exhausted. And I'm, you know, I, my classes start at 7.30 in the morning, so by this time I generally are pretty wabbit. Mount weasel are made up words. So today are two words I like to tell my students, pulchritude and steatopigia. Because I always ask my students, would you prefer if someone told you you had a lot of steatopigia or a lot of pulchritude? I'm not going to ask you. Typically, they vote about half and half. Pulchritude is beauty, comeliness, attractiveness. Steatopigia is fat on or around the buttocks. <laughs> and if you look up the definition, it says, especially prevalent among the koi in Africa, which in that culture is a mark of great pulchritude. You see how it all fits together in this beautiful word tapestry of pulchritude and steatopigia? And also cult culture, what do we mean by beauty? What we may think is beautiful is not beautiful in a different culture, right? That is culture-dependent and time-dependent. So what we are going to continue, and again, one of my disclaimers again, Alan is the teacher of this class. I am just a substitute. Blame him. That's right. And also what I appreciate about Alan's teaching is he is very good at just not having many notes and just speaking from his knowledge of the material. I don't have that in-depth knowledge, so my slides have more words. So just recognize that, and I, you know, that's just the way it is. So the two books that I've primarily read on this topic are Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes and Misreading Scripture with Individualistic Eyes. This is the main one that I use in addition to the information Alan gave me. This one talks a lot more about kinship and patronage and brokers and clients and things that Alan's already talked about in here. So my question is, what has Alan been discussing? What are some things you remember from previous classes? Anything at all? Rachel. And there was an expectation of the client to be loyal to the patron. What's that? She said, she, Alan talked about patronage and clients and the broker and how the clients and the word grace is what the patron gives to the client, but also the client gives grace to the patron. And we talked, again, different grace in the sense of thanksgiving versus grace in the sense of unmerited gifts that you can't pay back. But there is that expectation of the client 
to the patron. And from a Christian standpoint, because he's using this image, which would have been very familiar in Roman culture, that this is not cheap salvation. This is not God gives you this, now do whatever you want. We have an allegiance to the patron. We're expected to have that gratitude and loyalty. And that's part of sort of the image he's creating there with patronage. And Jesus is the perfect broker. The broker is, knows both, and he's the one that sort of bridges the gap. And that's what Jesus does. So he talked about that. Anything else Alan talked about that you remember? He may listen to this, so you really want to come up with something. Because <laughs> it's very discouraging as a professor when you ask, what do they remember? And it's like, I was here. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, anyone from any of the lessons, not just last week. Yeah, so we talked about guilt, innocence type culture versus honor, shame type culture as well as power, fear type cultures. And that was, again, one of the lessons I talked about that. And not saying one is better than the other, but this is just a tendency you need to be aware of, okay, in terms of we tend to live in a guilt, innocence. At the New Testament times and Old Testament times, it was primarily an honor, shame culture, okay? So... This is a slide I used last time, but again, big picture, always to remember that we live in a culture which is neither good or bad, neither right or wrong compared to other cultures. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't things that are done in that culture that we would consider wrong, but the culture itself is not inherently wrong, okay? We live in Western, individualistic, Greek-based culture. That is sort of our heritage here in the United States. The Bible originally an Eastern, collectivist, Jewish culture. That's sort of the background behind the New Testament and Christianity. And the challenge is, and one of our main takeaways from this class, just to be aware of that. Be aware that when we read scripture, we bring certain biases to it. And that doesn't mean we can't understand scripture and we can't apply scripture to our lives, but we just want to approach it with humility, as we were talking about before class. Um, so anyway, a few other comments on the differences. So we live in, this is a, a statement that came from my previous Genesis class. We live in this cultural river that influences how we interpret the actions, words around us. Our cultural river is, you know, democracy, individualism. And if we look at the 21st century, we have books and libraries and the sun is a star. In the ancient Near East, the sun was a light in the that's it. They didn't think it was any, the stars were the same distance as the sun. They were just lights. So a different cultural river, un, you know, we have the concept of science. They had no concept of science. So the cultural river influences the way we think about things. And just to be aware of that is important. Ours is a literary culture based on what is written. And that influences how we read scripture because theirs was primarily an oral culture. And we'll talk about this later, but what that meant is when they got a letter from Paul, it was read. Everyone didn't get a copy that they could read in their own room. They were read it and they interpreted it as a group. It was a collectivist, oral way of reading those letters or getting those letters. The Bible originated in an oral culture based on stories passed down. Again, I gave that class the second one in this lesson, in this series. Ours is individualistic culture. Rights of the individual are valued highly. And we'll talk more about individualistic versus collectivist. Bible was a communal culture, a collectivist culture, where the rights of the group 
are more highly valued than the rights of the individual, okay? And again, that doesn't mean our culture is selfish. We're concerned about the rights of the individual. That doesn't mean we're more selfish than any other culture. That's just where do people primarily put their priorities. Okay, so what picture comes to mind when you think of devotional time? When you think of devotional time, what do you think of? Prayer, what else? Quiet, what else? Being alone, you know, ideal devotional time. I'm by myself up in the mountains, not so early in the morning, but not so late. You know, it's not hot yet, but it's not like still dark and I had a good night's sleep. But that's what we think of as a wonderful devotional time, right? So we tend to think of this image on the left, whereas in many collectivist cultures, devotional time is more like the situation on the right where you're getting together, you're talking about this, there's not so much an emphasis on me being alone and studying by myself. That certainly wouldn't have been the way it was in the first century. They didn't have scriptures to study on your own. They would have done it in groups. Now, is there anything wrong with being alone and studying alone and praying alone? Absolutely not. I mean, we have examples of Jesus, right? Jesus talks about very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to the solitary place where he prayed. And all these examples of Jesus is going alone to pray, not going alone to study scriptures, because you know that was done in the synagogue. But we do have examples of going alone, and that's certainly fine. I'm not saying that's wrong, but our ten image is a quiet time by myself studying, as opposed to me with other people studying, helping one another. Sort of like we're doing here. This is probably a bigger group than what this would be referring to. Okay, so here are some comics. I didn't like the pictures, but I didn't redraw them. So let's assume a Guatemalan is visiting America. So here's a conversation between them. It says, it's so good to finally meet you. I'm looking forward to staying with you and your family. And the American says, please make yourself at home. Your room is upstairs, the TV and the refrigerator and the room behind me. I'm sure you're tired, so I'll just leave you alone. That's the conversation. Guatemalan says, I'm not welcome here. And the American says, I am being such a good and caring host. Well, let's switch it. American goes to visiting a Filipino, another collectivist type culture. American, it's so good to finally meet you. I'm looking forward to staying with you and your family. And the Filipino says, come sit within the sala with me, the sitting room. I invited a lot of friends and neighbors to celebrate until then let's have some food and I will show your show you my family photos. And what does the American think? I hope it's not like, gonna be like this the whole time, right? I need some time to myself. And the Filipino saying, I am such a good host, right? Differences in the cultures and what's expected of a host, what the other person values in terms of being with other people, I, I really need some time by myself to sort of unwind from my trip is very different than I really need other people around me, okay? So here's a map of collectivism versus individualism, collectivist versus individualistic cultures. And again, one of the main points of pictures like this, it's not black and white. There's a spectrum. So the dark or purple indicates more individualistic tendencies, whereas the white or light pink indicate more collectivist tendencies. So China, Middle East tend to be more collectivist, many places in Africa. 
What are the primary individualistic? America, Canada, Western Europe, um, Australia. We see a little bit in Spain and Portugal more collectivist. That's probably England. Yeah, obviously that is more individualistic. But again, that doesn't mean you don't have it all over the place. It's a spectrum. Okay, so one thing that was in one of the books I read was stereotypes are always wrong, but they're usually helpful. Okay, so you have to be careful stereo. Oh, you're from China, therefore you believe this. That's not true, therefore you're like this. That's not necessarily true. But they do give us general insights. And this interprets how we read scripture. It also interprets how we would evangelize, how we would try to share the gospel with someone from a different culture. So again, it's a spectrum. So I know these are small, but this is a table Alan gave me I thought was interesting. Looking at the difference between individualistic and collectivist cultures. And again, these are generalizations. So the category is caregiving. And here is the reference website if you want. And again, if you ever want my slides, just let me know. I'm happy to send you a PDF of them. So caregiving in an individualistic society. Everyone is supposed to take care of him or herself and his or her immediate family, maybe. Right? Because, you know, Rachel used to visit the nursing home all the time, and there were people there that their family never, ever visited them. They said someone else would take care of them. They were not taking care of their family. So that's, you know, again, generally, we take care of our family and that's it. Collectivist people are born into extended families or clans which protect them in exchange for loyalty. So it's a much larger group, and there's a much more higher expectation of caring for one another. And you see this in Japan, where elderly are held in much higher regard than here. Communication. Speaking one's mind is healthy in an individualistic culture. Harmony should be maintained. So if you're speaking, your mind's going to cause disharmony. It's better to not talk. I'm not saying this is right. This is just general tendencies. Consciousness. Individualistic, sort of an I consciousness. Yeah. Yep. Uh, our culture tends to uh, the life culture. <laughs> yeah, China culture or Africa. Yeah. I can't answer that, but I suspect they have some, but I also suspect they have different ones. Yeah, Benita. So very big on consensus building. But also it means they are slower moving. It means they're not going to be able to respond to a situation as rapidly. So again, there's pros and cons. There's going to be different issues primarily, I would say. Although, again, it still has people. So you're, whenever you have people, you're going to have problems. Uh, again, I consciousness versus we consciousness. Yes. Because they don't want to stand out. Uh, if you tell a, if you ask, call a name, then they're used to authority. They will answer. But the thing is, if they answer and they're correct, they're kind of showing off. If they fail to answer correctly, they've lost faith. That they're but shamed. They're very careful not to cause someone to lose faith. That's right. It's a very different situation. 
Okay, education. And again, I don't know if I agree with all of these, but I assume the website is correct. Again, I'm not an expert in this area. Purpose of education is learning how to learn versus purpose of education is learning how to do something. Training versus critical thinking, maybe. And sometimes we hear about that when we look at education in China, it's memorization and rote, and they're doing versus, well, we want to be critical thinkers. And yeah, I'm, I think that the happy median between those two is what you want. Group identity, right to privacy versus stress on belonging to the group. Language, language in which the word I is indispensable. We use I all the time versus languages in which I try to avoid the word I. Like you were saying, you don't want to stand out from the crowd. Opinion, this is generalizations. Again, we, we have to be very careful to say, well, everyone's like this. That's not true. Um, personal opinion expected, one person, one vote. On opinion, opinions are and votes predetermined by in-groups. And again, we would say that's just wrong in democracies, and it is in democracies. But you, you sort of expect the elders to make, again, it's not necessarily the whole community, but you expect a group to make a decision there. Others, classified as individuals. You're all individuals with your own rights versus others classified as you're either in my group or not in my group. You're in my clan or not in my clan. And you can see in China, the, leader, the, the leaders of China want to make all the decisions. And that's the problem happening in Hong Kong, where they're saying, no, we want to vote, we want democracy, and you have a conflict here. And that could be partly cultural, partly communist versus democracy. There's a number of issues going on there, but part of it is cultural. Uh, task orientation, task prevails over relationship versus relationship prevails over tasks. And transgression, transgression of norms leads to guilt feelings. We talked about this when we talked about the guilt-innocence culture versus transgression of norms leads to shame feelings would be more of the shame, honor shame culture. Okay, so individualism has some generic, we looked at sort of some of the qualities there, but let me give you some more. So it does not imply selfish or prideful. It's not right or wrong or better or worse. It's just primarily focused more on individual and there are characteristics of that. Most important entity is the individual, protecting my individual rights, which I say we see that all the time here. Identity from distinguishing oneself from those around you. We want to be our own person, right? We sort of want to be, we don't want to be one of the crowd. We don't, we want to have an identity distinguished from others. Avoid peer pressure and think independently. Decisions made regardless of others, even parents, careers, I decide who I want to marry. I decide if I'm going to take this job. Now, I may talk to some of my parents, depending on the relationship. Certainly not expected. It's my life. It's my decision. It's my body. You know, we'll, we'll not go there. Okay, so it's a virtue to be true to oneself. Now, collectivist, general characteristics. Most important entity is the family, community, tribe, country, the group, the collective. That's more... I don't want to say the collective because that sounds like the Borg in Star Trek. But you don't know what I'm saying here. Goal is preserving the harmony of the community. Identity is from knowing and fulfilling one's place in the group, not the sort of individualism. 
no goal to get ahead of others or move beyond the community. Generalizations here, obviously this is not true for every individual. Decisions are made based on counsel of elders, parents, aunts, uncles. And we'll talk about implications of that in a little bit. Highest goal is supporting the community. One example that I've seen that sort of illustrates this is when you go to a restaurant and you're ordering, you know, I want the prime rib, I want the pasta. Have you ever felt like, you know, I want the, this, but the person right next to you just ordered that? And sometimes I feel like I don't want to order it now because they just ordered it. That's a very individualistic response. Whereas in Japan, everyone orders the same thing. <laughs> or more tendency for that because they don't want to stand out. So whereas, again, I feel weird ordering the same thing. Now I'm better at it now. It's like I don't care what they ordered. I want the prime rib. But I have felt that feeling, which is why I mentioned that. And I sort of question my, well, do I really want that or do I want something else now? Okay, another modern example of that. School uniforms. So these are my two sons, Wesley and Stephen, when we lived in England. Now, obviously, England is mostly individualistic, but they have school uniforms, at least at this private school they attended. And I just like to show pictures of my kids. They are now no longer as cute or small. So research shows, in terms of school uniform, that it tends to reduce bullying. It tends to improve academic performance. And it can make school safer because you can tell if there's an outsider because all the kids are wearing their uniforms. So that's what, again, quick Google search. I'm not going to quote the peer-reviewed articles, but that these are general characteristics. Now, what is the response from an individualistic society, individualistic culture about uniforms? They inhibit my individuality. They violate my First Amendment rights to free expression, which is the, and I, my free expression is how I dress. They are contrary to the core American value of self-determination. I control my own destiny, and you're forcing me to wear these other clothes. Okay? Collectivist culture is the community is most important. That's great. The, the issue is, is individuality more important than having a safer, improved learning environment? I'm not sure it is. But people obviously respond very strongly to school uniforms. But it's based on this individual rights as opposed to even what's best educationally for the kids. <laughs> Another example is arranged marriages. Now again, I'm not saying I'm in favor of arranged marriages, because I am not, okay? But what is the mindset behind an arranged marriage? You know, a lot of cultures do this, not as common nowadays, but it used to be very, very common, right? Why, what do you think would promote an arranged marriage? Why they think that would be the right way to go. Any thoughts? Okay, maybe keeps your, you know, certainly you're not going to arrange a marriage with someone outside your community. What else? Sometimes they were economic, certainly in the olden days, they were almost all economic business decisions, joining of families, wealth, prestige. That could still be today, joining of families. What else? Well, I'm saying the rationale, some of the rationale for this. <laughs> you don't have to worry about dating. A marriage is not just the joining of two people, it's a joining of two families, which is really true. I mean, sometimes we neglect that, but it really is the joining of two families. And the community has a stake in the joining of two families and the harmony of these two families. 
And they're also wiser. They have more experience. Why leave this really important decision to two hormonally hyped up kids? Why do we let them make this really important decision when we know best? That would be sort of the rationale. I'm saying, not saying I think this is right. I think Rachel's mom would have voted for me. No, I think she would have been on my side, but I'm not sure about her dad. So anyway, um, there's a story in the book about this church one of the authors went to in Indonesia. And there was, the elders came to them with a, a problem. And they said, you know, we have this young couple that wants to place membership. But we don't know if we can allow them in because of their grievous sin. And they'd been coming for a year, faithful members. And so they, well, what was the grievous sin? Well, they eloped. And that was, the grie that was a grievous sin because they did not go to their parents for this most important decision. They did not respect their elders. Are they even, can we even allow them to be part of this church because it's so bad? And I think his response is the same as ours. Is, You've got to be joking. That's just ridiculous. You know, they seem to be happily married. Everything's going fine. Why is this a problem? Well, in that culture, it was really a problem. Now, I hope they did extend full fellowship to this, but that was one of the stories in the book. Yeah. That's right. And, and so again, I'm not saying I'm in favor of arranged marriages. I'm just saying these are some of the thoughts behind it. And I'm not, I don't agree with them, obviously. But it can create, now if they'd stayed in that culture, in that town, in that village with everyone around it, it may have been worked out okay. And you hear stories of arranged marriages working out fine. Yeah. It's forced upon them. Right, and part of it is they say, I think that, again, this is my presumption, they say, I trust my parents. I trust my community that they would not pick someone for me that they did not think was right. So there's a trust in the family. We do have subcultures in the West that are primarily collectivist. Example, football team, basketball team, sports teams. You know, we see there's no I in team. They're they work much together, their focus is to work as a group. And if someone is not doing their role, typically the team's not going to be as successful. Another example, I'm sure you can think of this, military. They're all wearing the same uniform. Back at my previous school, I could tell students apart based on what they wear. Not anymore, they're all the same. This is during basic training, and they all have the same haircut. In fact, individualism is not, you know, that doesn't mean we don't want soldiers that think well, but you want someone who's thinking of the larger group primarily. They're willing to give their life for their country, which is, which is a tremendous thing, right? But that's more of a collectivist mentality. Okay, so why does this matter? How does this relate to us? It impacts how we read this and interpret the scripture. I'll give you some examples of that. It picks how, impacts how we share the gospel and conversion, and we'll talk about that. The Bible was written in a collectivist culture. We are reading from an individualistic culture. So again, that's, being aware of that can help us interpret and scripture a little bit better. So let's think about conversion a little bit. In terms of individualistic culture, this is the way we tend to think of it. The decision to be, and this is the way I've always thought of it. Decision to become a Christian is personal and individual decision. 
And let's look at our songs. I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow, right? It's me, me and Jesus. I'm, I'm deciding to follow Jesus. It's not so simple in collectivist cultures. <clears throat> so it's not strictly an individual decision. For major decisions, they would always talk to aunts, uncles, mom, dad. They would get input from others. Now, again, that doesn't mean there's not an individual responsibility. It's not an excuse to say, well, my parents would, it's just a huge hurdle that they would have to overcome in that culture. <clears throat> and no, Jesus did make it clear that sometimes our decisions are going to put us in conflict with our family. Right? He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my follower. This would have been incredibly radical to anyone in the first century, where family, father, mother, that's the unit. <clears throat> and he's saying you need to hate them. And again, he doesn't mean actually hate them. It's just in terms of priority. This would have been really, really radical. So again, I'm not saying, well, my dad says I can't become a Christian, so I can't. That's not an excuse, but it does make a hurdle, very, very big hurdle for people. <clears throat> it also helps us understand some of the conversions we read about in the New Testament. I'll give you two examples. Example number one, Acts 16. <clears throat> it says, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had, women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira, Thyatira named Lydia, I know, Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of her God. Also, what do we know about Lydia based on the fact she was a dealer in purple cloth? Probably wealthy. She was probably a patron. They met, the church met at her house. She was probably wealthy patron. She probably had a significant household. Um... She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her house, then when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she says, "Come and stay at my house." And they, so she and the members of her household were baptized. Let's look at another example. This is also in Acts 16. The jailer called for lights. This is so they've been arrested. They're in Philippi. There was the earthquake. The, the prison doors all open, so I'm not reading the whole thing, and now we enter the story. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So we see these situations where whole households were coming to Jesus. We have other examples. These are just two. Okay, that's, what questions do we ask? We say, how old were the kids? Did everyone individually make an individual commitment to Jesus? And how do you know? You know it just says the whole household. So, what's the problem with the way we think about this? We tend to think about this as this was probably more of a group family decision to become Christians. Or maybe even the case of Lydia, she was the patronage, she was patron. She was the head of the household. They all looked to her. 
If it's good enough for her, it's good enough for me. In fact, there's a story in the book about a conversion of one of the author's friends, who was a, and this individual was a faithful Christian, but this is the rationale they gave when they became a Christian. My father is wiser than I am. He says Jesus is better, then I know Jesus is better. So I'm trusting my father and his wisdom. And so we do see whole households being converted. Now, how old were the kids? I don't know what it means by household. Probably maybe older children. I don't think young children would have been considered. But I don't know. That's what a household would be. It's not just me and my husband. It's the servants. It's everyone in the house. They sort of followed the lead of the patriarch of the house. What's that? Absolutely. It's a whole household. That's exactly right. Okay. Our individualistic tendencies can give us wrong idea about how some biblical texts were composed. When we think of Paul writing the letters, what do we think of? I suspect we think of something like this. He's by himself at a desk, thinking, writing, you know, a word processor. I'm not sure what he was doing. But he's composing his letters here, where in actuality it was probably more something like this. Paul was always in a group. He talks about Timothy, he talks about Barnabas, he talks about Silas. He always had an entourage with him. There was a group with him. And the way, so he probably, here's some notes. First of all, they didn't have writing desks, according to this reference. Authors commonly stood and dictated to a scribe, so someone else was typically writing. We saw that in 1 Peter. It talks about with the help of Silas, who in regards to faith of brother. Silas wasn't necessarily just the scribe. He probably contributed to the content, as well as Timothy, Barnabas, and others. So he probably wrote in places where other people were around. And so he probably wasn't a room by himself. He's probably in the marketplace, probably in the main. There weren't a lot of rooms in a house with enough light that one could write. So he probably would place other people around, would have stopped by to listen. And this is ancients, when they wrote, they spoke. So they, ancients read aloud. And they would offer advice. They would listen. They would say, you know, is that right? You know, and they would do that because that's a way of caring, to show interest in what Paul and Timothy and others are doing. So other people were probably engaged in this process. And we know six of Paul's letters indicate a co-author. Yet we traditionally ignore them. We say the letters of Paul. We don't say Paul and Timothy, Paul and Sylvanus or whoever. Teamwork and cooperation was the norm. Paul's always had a team. And scholars, and this is interesting in terms of some of the controversies over Paul's letters. And I think the controversy comes about by thinking of it in terms of this Western how we write letters instead of how would they have written letters. So scholars have debated for centuries whether all the letters attributed to Paul were actually written by Paul. And part of the problem is they say, well, this doesn't sound like Paul. It's not exactly the same sentence structure he uses. It's not the same vocabulary he primarily uses. But if you think of this as this was written with co-authors and scribes who are contributing, it makes sense that the style would be a little bit different. The vocabulary would be a little bit different because it wasn't written just by himself in a room by himself, in which case I think you could make the argument, this doesn't seem right, but that's not the way letters were written. He did. That doesn't mean there weren't. So, he Again, this is, I would say, the general characteristic. But even in jail, it was house arrest for some of them. In which case, I do think people brought him food. There were probably people around. 
okay, the so again, are you putting the inspiration on Paul then? Paul was the inspired person? Or I would say God inspired the, yeah, God inspired the, the documents that we have today. Um, yeah, I would say God was not, give, well, Paul, write this. I don't think that's the way inspiration worked or works back then because I don't think people are inspired now. Yes. Bringing down the Ten Commandments. God dictated to him. And that's not what happened. And again, out of so many of Paul's letters, he says, so-and-so says hello, and say hi to this person. And there was a community here. Okay, we, Alan already talked about the birth of Jesus, right? So I'm not going to go through that in much detail. But just how we tend to think of this image on the left, Mary and Joseph in a barn with animals around, versus the image on the right, where there was family, there was you know, aunts, cousins helped with the birth. There was probably a lot of people there. And I'm not going to talk about the inn and so on, because Alan already discussed that. But one question was, why would Joseph drag his pregnant wife across the country to Bethlehem at this time? And we know Rome was having a census, but it turns out they gave a pretty long window in which you need to go to be counted. So he probably could have waited until Mary had the baby before they went. He didn't say go here at this time, I don't think. But the reason probably they went to Bethlehem is because the whole family was going. And families went together. So that's probably why they went, because they wanted their aunts and cousins and mother-in-law there to help with the baby. Okay, So they probably went as a family. It wasn't just the two of them walking down the road in their donkey. They would have been by themselves. which would. And again, I think Alan mentioned that it would have been a cultural shame to the community to have this pregnant mother give birth with the animals. So that would have been shameful to the community. So it was a likely a bustling event with grandparents, aunts, uncles, and so on. Okay, so next thing we're gonna talk about are how this can influence the way we read scripture. So here's sort of the disclaimer at the beginning, okay? So the Bible applies to us. We acknowledge that the Bible has application for today, even though it records events written to another culture in a distant past. And we already call on my previous class, I said the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written to someone else. That doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us, but we have to be careful interpreting it. Second one, God is the same yesterday, today, forever, because his character does not change. The way he dealt with people in the past I think we learned something about his character and how he's going to deal with us. Okay, I think we can certainly do it. He was trust, trustworthy then, and he's certainly trustworthy now. So, let me share a couple examples of how this individualistic tendency can affect the way we read things. So, dangers can occur when we view scriptures through the lens of me. In an oral culture, it was an oral culture, so again, scripture was read in a community, and I mentioned this before, and interpreted in a community. People would not have said, what does this mean to me? They would have said, what does this mean for us? Okay, that's a little bit different. This started to change in the Reformation in Gutenberg. Now we have our own Bibles. Now we're starting to study by ourselves. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. 
but recognize the way it was originally written that's, and the culture that it was originally written in. That's not the way it would be. So, difference between reading the word individually versus hearing the word, which is communal. We often ask, what does it mean for me? Instead of, what does it mean for us? And even better than that, how does this apply to us? So I don't think you should ever ask, what does this mean to me? Because that says, well, I'm putting my own interpretation on it. Instead of, well, what did this mean to the original people who are reading this to the best of my ability? So dangers of misprioritizing passages. That is, if there's no application for me, then it's not as important. And so we've missed the applications for us, which are critically important. And we can confuse application with meaning. And this is what I mentioned earlier. So we should generally should not say, what does this mean to me? But what is this, how does this apply to me? Or how does this apply to us? I think those are better questions. And another tendency is we, whenever we see you in the Bible, I interpret that to be me, right? You are the temple of God. I am the temple of God. That's not what that passage is saying, okay? So let's look at some of these. Has any of you seen this verse? on graduation mugs or cards. It's one of the most popular graduation verses. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Wonderful verse. But should this be a life verse, necessarily? So let's look at this verse in context. So this is in Jeremiah. The beginning of Jeremiah, it says, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and the other people Nebuchadnezzar had called, carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who is this written to? Those carried into exile. Okay, So that's who this is written to. A lot of words here. I'm going to read it so it gets on the tape. I mean, I prefer someone else reading it, but I will do that. And then I'll highlight some points, because I want to read the verse in context from what we just read. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters, wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage, so they, may too, so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in numbers there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I, do, I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and I will find me and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and so on. <coughs> so, who is the you? in that verse, for I know the plans I have for you. It's the exiles, Israel. <clears throat> so this is another way of writing that second paragraph there. 
This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to Israel and fulfill my good promise to bring Israel back to this place. For, no, for I know the plans I have for Israel, declares the Lord, plans to prosper Israel and not to harm Israel, because plans to give Israel hope in a future. Then Israel will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to Israel. Israel will seek me and find me when Israel seeks me. With all of Israel's hearts, I will be found by Israel, declares the Lord. And will bring Israel back from captivity. I will gather Israel from all the nations and places where I have banished Israel, declares the Lord. And will bring Israel back to the place from which I carried Israel into exile. How long did this take? Seventy years, right? So what's the problem if I interpret this verse uh, about me? For Israel, it took 70 years. So if something's bad happening to me now, it's like, well, God's not carrying his promise. He told me I was, he plans to prosper and not harm, plans to give me hope in a future. And most of the people who went into exile died before they saw this. So... I'm saying that this is not as inspirational on a coffee mug, but would be a better interpretation. For I know the plans I have for Israel, declares the Lord, plans to prosper Israel and not to harm Israel, plans to give Israel hope and a future. The problem is that would not sell. <laughs> and it's not written to me. Okay? So the question is, It doesn't talk about it right now. Well, let's look at the application to us. So again, the question is, what, how does this apply to us? And I think this applies to us because he's talking about Israel, not individuals. Individuals could die. They could suffer. They're gonna, he's not talking about the individuals that went into exile. He's talking about Israel as a group. Israel as a group, I'm not going to harm. Hope for the future. So God has a plan for his church and we are called exiles, foreigners in this world, right? We're called exiles, we're called strangers in this world. So this verse is a corporate verse, not an individual promise. The danger is if we take it as an individual promise, then when things fall apart, we accuse God of breaking his promise. You said this, but it's not happening. And that's, I think, reading it individualistically when that's not really the way, the purpose and the context of it. Okay, how do you say it? He does have plans, but we can't get plans for me individually from this verse. What? Yes, Bonita. And we tend to think something's wrong with my faith, that things aren't going well, potentially. That's right. <clears throat> that is the coming out of exile. That's the, That's the hope. That's the future. 
But when they were in exile, things didn't always go well with them. Sometimes they prospered, sometimes they didn't. Right, but they were in exile. And so again, I don't think we can use this verse directly applied to me individually in my life. That's fine. Okay, moving on. And again, remember, I, I want to make... Remember, I want... Yeah, there's, there's a little bit of hostility right now. And I, I wanted to say one last thing before we get... Where should you address, address your hostility towards? Thank you. Okay. And we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about that in a few more slides. That's exactly right, because that's another implication. The man said, "I have a plan," and God laughed. Well, that's true. Okay, another verse: Temple of God. Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That first you is not singular you. That first you is plural you. So. New Living Translation translates like this. Don't you realize that y'all, that all y'all together, all y'all is plural of y'all, I believe. So don't you realize that, or the conjugation, I can't remember my southern verbs. So don't you realize that all y'all together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells within you. Meaning, God doesn't have a million little temples going around. We are the temple of God. We're built into the temple. We're called the temple. So this has implications because I think of it, I'm the temple of God, and you've probably heard sermons like this. So don't smoke. Don't use drugs. Exercise. Take care of the temple. Right? The temple is the church. We are part of that temple. We're building stones. There's other images that are used. So Paul is, in 1 Corinthians, he's not worried. Well, he's worried about bad behavior contaminating the entire congregation. That's what he's primarily worried about in this passage. So we all together make up the temple of God. The church community is critical, and that's what you were talking about, is church is not nice if I want to go. Church is critical, and we'll see that in just a second. So another one, you have been chosen. This is a classic Calvinist text, proof text. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. Well, first of all, in context, the us in here is Israel. Because it, Ephesians is talking about sort of Gentile Jewish relationships within the church. Now, having said that, later in the chapter, he talks about, and you too, talking to the Gentiles. So I think this still applies to us. But in the context, this originally is talking about Israel. And then later, he brings the Gentiles into it, in my opinion. But this is referring to Israel. And also, notice this is corporate. This is not you when it says, this uses us. Bless us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So this 
you know, Paul's readers would have understood this corporately and they wouldn't have interpreted this individually. You would ter- interpret this as the group. God has blessed us. He chose us as a group before the creation of the world. So this is viewed by Calvinists as a proof text that we all are individually elected by God to be Christian, to be, and either you're elected or you're not, right? We're predestined. This is saying he, um, for he chose us, chose the church before the creation of the world. So it's not talking about individual election, which I don't think was a concept in the time of Paul. Okay, the Jews of the first century lived in a collectivist culture. So to a Jew, to be a Jew means first and foremost to belong to a group. The Jewish people and the religious beliefs are secondary in a sense to this corporate allegiance. This is a reference. So this deeply rooted biblical emphasis upon the group is underscored by the fact that most Jewish prayers employ the plural we. Even Jesus did that, our father, right? Not my father. It was our father. It was a corporate prayer. And the community also was more than just the people here right now. It incorporated the past and the future. And we actually see that in Deuteronomy. I'm making a covenant both with you who stand here today in the presence of the Lord our God and also with future generations. They had a broader view of the community. And they took very seriously about being a brother's keeper. Okay, let's talk about the image of the church as a family. And so... Here's another radical saying Jesus made. He said, pointing to his disciples, he said, here is my mother, here are my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In Rome, it was frowned upon to claim familial relations, which wasn't family. Family was blood. And Jesus is throwing that on its head and saying, brother, the family of God, Christians, is a family. And that what it's actually the true family. And again, this is saying this is more important than your blood family, which would have been incredibly difficult and radical at that time. So what's interesting for me is the way the Bible portrays the church as family. And I think what we're missing is what would it like to have been, what did family mean back in the first century? It was not, well, we take care of my wife and my kids. It was this much deeper responsibility and commitment to one another. So specifically, the expectations and obligations placed on families in collective societies. There's obligations towards family. And if you don't take care of your family, you're shamed. And it challenges the way Westerners understand the church, because I think we view the church very casually. Do I have obligations to all of you? Well, maybe if I know you, but if I don't know you, you know, that's not a brother and sister in the first century. You have obligations. A cousin comes to you that you've never met, but you trace the yes, this is my wife's, my mother's, sister's, cousin's son. <clears throat> I have an obligation to them. They're going to come in. I'm going to take care of them. There's a story in the book about, <clears throat> I don't know if it was an author or a friend of an author, <clears throat> that were traveling someplace. They ran out of money. They're stuck in a town. He seemed to recall that his dad said there were, might be some cousins here. So he finally found someone, he said, and sure enough, he was a cousin, and that family took him in for eight months because there was this obligation to family. Whereas we take, what's that?
Matthew 12. Yes, I'm sorry. So that's Matthew 12. Thank you. I expect Rachel to proof these. So it's Rachel's fault. <laughs> Actually, it's, yeah. Who do we blame? Who do we complain to? Alan, Alan. Okay. So the Christian community of the early church was collectivist. So we look at the terms family, body, temple. Those are all groups or collections of things. Body is collection of parts. Temple is a collection of stones. Family is a collection of members. So when they finished the book of the Torah, the community would recite, be strong, be strong, and let us strengthen one another, that community. So as Christians, we're not meant to live our lives as individuals, but as part of a community. There is really no biblical concept of just me and Jesus. And sometimes we hear that today. Or, you know, I'm a lone Christian. I, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. I'm, I just like to go into the woods and pray with God, and it's God and me. And, and that's not a biblical concept of Christianity. So there's an example of Anne Rice, if you're familiar with her. She's an author. She wrote Interview with a Vampire. I think 2010, she decided she'd had enough of being a Christian. About 10 years earlier, she had become a Christian, and she actually wrote some books about Jesus. I don't know if any of you have read any of those by Anne Rice. But eventually, she said she couldn't take it anymore. And this is a quote she made. And I'm not trying to pick on Anne Rice. I'm just saying she's sort of a famous example of this attitude. And what she said was, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow me nothing less. How would you respond to someone who feels that way? <laughs> okay. So we're not going to send Erica to talk to her. <laughs> there, yeah, and again, is this an inaccurate? It suggests isolation. Yeah, this suggests isolation, just me and Jesus. And there are unpleasant people professing to be Christians. And there are. But again, to me, this is a very individualistic view versus we as the body of Christ. I don't want to ascribe to her any motives or what her experiences were. I'm just saying this is sort of a common view. And also the very casual attitude, well... You were mean to me. I'll just go find another church. I'm not committed to this group. Well, I'm not, my needs aren't being met, right? Have you ever heard that? Uh, my needs aren't being met, so I'm just, you know, it's a very, and, you know, first century, they didn't have a church on every other corner. So as a result, I think we have a very low opinion of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's... Well, we tend to view of it, I think we tend to view it as a health club. 
if you know they have the right equipment for me, I'll keep going to that health club. But if not, I'll go to the health club down the street. Okay. You done. That's right. That's right. And again, I, I think it does affect the way we view one another. Do I genuinely view you as family, brothers and sisters, closer than my blood family? I don't. It's hard for me. I want to, but I think that would change the way we think about the church and getting together. Comment? I have one more slide. We're out of time. We're not out of time. We're a little over time, but I'm okay with that. So Alan likes to always close with a bit of trivia, not necessarily related to the topic of the day. So this one is about Revelation 3, 15 through 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold or hot. I wish you were either. This is in Revelation, talking to the church of Laodicea. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And the way that's typically interpreted is, I want you hot or cold. I want you super excited for Jesus, hot, or I'd rather you're like, Dawkins and just atheistic and antagonistic towards, but just don't be the sort of lukewarm Christian. That's what we sometimes interpret that to be. Well, that's not the only interpretation. And again, I'm not saying this is correct because I read some articles pro and con on this view. But one view is Laodicea is right here, and there were aqueducts from Hierapolis as well as Colossae. So Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. So they had hot water springs there. Colossi was, they had cold, refreshing water. There was a river right there. So both of these went to Laodicea. Both hot and cold were good. Healthy, good. Warm was sort of the lukewarm was not so good. So when he says, I'd rather you hot and cold, he's not saying, I wish you were excited about Christ. You're not ex super not excited. He's saying, Hot and cold water, those are both good things. Don't be this lukewarm person. So it's a different interpretation of that. Hot springs, cold, pure water, we're done. Thank you. Have a good night. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. Like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.